We share the, the same love, the, the love of film. And now what I'm about to say probably will stir up a lot of conversation around over the country. You commie, homo-loving sons of guns. It's not about you. It's about these characters. They are two of the finest gay Americans, two wonderful men. And I am greatly honored and tremendously moved. Don't let anybody tell you this isn't a terrific thrill. It would be a lie if I told you I didn't know what to say because I've been working on this speech for about 25 years. Well, it's my privilege. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to Academy Queens. I'm ready for a bit of the old ultra-violence. I'm Brandon Stanwyck. And Golda, I'm asking you a question. I'm Jerry Gentile. And we're here today with a special Academy Queens Patreon bonus episode covering the Best Picture lineup of 1971. So, um, Joey, this was uh, your selection. So what is it about the lineup of Best Pictures of 1971 that so interests you? First of all, I miss the 70s. I, I miss talking about my favorite decade of American cinema, my favorite decade of cinema, period. Um, and it's been a long time since we've been here. And I wanted something that, like, we haven't really talked about the films, because in this lineup, when we did 1971, we only really got to talk about the performances from Last Picture Show and um, Nicholas and Alexandra. And it's that was we released that episode as a back-to-back premiere episode when we premiered six seasons ago. Um, So it's been almost two years and it is, I don't know. I just, this lineup is very impressive. Four are really impressive. One is not. And this lineup also has a really, really interesting controversy with it that I can't wait to talk about. And really Three films that became iconic, one that is pretty iconic in film Twitterverse, and then one that is wrongfully forgotten. So it's quite a mixed bag of just goodies. Um, That's why I chose it. And I was like, we need to do this, and I hope we get to do this. And uh, yeah, what do you think of it? Yeah, it's a very um, eclectic lineup. Um, Each of these Best Picture nominees is very different from the other four in terms of genre, tone, uh, period. Um, It's five very different movies. And um, like you were saying, um, some of them have become like pop culture icons. And um, yeah, I'm very interested to get back into this. Uh, We haven't talked about um, this year. And like you were saying, two years, and we've only covered two of the movies. So um, we have three films that we've never talked about here and um it's going to be fun to get into them for sure and um especially because i knew for the longest time that you had never seen fiddler on the roof and it blew my mind that you had never done it and then i was like yeah we, we if we do this here you can finally see it your son of a bitch ass went oh no i saw it already back in august what well, we had been talking about doing this episode for a little while, and so I watched it way back when we had first discussed it. I think this was an option on Patreon, uh, one of the selections that we gave the listeners, the patrons, to select, and they ended up not going with it. But I had watched the movie anyway because I thought there was a chance it might be the the pick of the, the patrons. So I was ready back then. So um, now we're doing it on our own. Uh, because we just decided we want to do it. So yeah, I, I had seen it uh, a few months ago now. 
Nice, nice. Well, I am really excited to talk to you about this. So um, who do you think I'm going to choose this year? Um, well, um, speaking of Fiddler, I know you are quite fond of um, that film, but I also know you really like Nicholas and Alexandra more than most people. And um, you're a huge um, proponent of it. Um, so I have a feeling it's between those two. Um, I'm just going to go with um, Fiddler on the Roof, just because. Okay. So I thought about this long and hard because I feel like this could be very you in the sense of it's too predictable because you were a big proponent of The Last Picture Show. But I think you could also shock me here because, like, you're a huge book lover. And obviously Clockwork Orange is infamous in not only film but book. But at the same time, you really could go for any of these. You could end up, I mean, you could have revisited this and really found something in Nicholas and Alexandra that you did in the first time. Or you could agree with the Academy with French Connection. So, I mean, it is literally any of these from you. I'm going to go... Fiddle on the roof for you as well. I want you to surprise me. And I think that might be the biggest surprise if you go for that. So I'm going to say out of all these to surprise me the most, it would be Fiddler. So you're also going Fiddler on the Roof. Okay. Would you like to start this well, year? Um, oh, you mean kick it off here? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I figured we'd start with the three that we haven't talked about yet. Um, mm -hmm. So I just uh, put them in alphabetical order, uh, which happened to put it in that arrangement where we talk about those three first. So um, the first one we have here is A Clockwork Orange. It is nominated for four Oscars, but it does not win any on the night. It is nominated uh, for Best Picture, Director, Screenplay, and Editing. Going into the Oscars, it wins uh, with the New York Film Critics and the Hugo Awards, which is a sci-fi fantasy awards body. It's also recognized with the Golden Globes, uh, DGA, WGA, National Society of Film Critics, and not technically a precursor, but it is nominated for a BAFTA the next year, which I find interesting considering this is, I'm pretty sure, a British production, uh, that it wouldn't be you know, nominated in the same year. Um, so uh, Clockwork Orange, like you said, is pretty infamous. Um, I don't think I really need to get into a plot synopsis. I feel like our listeners are quite familiar with it. So um, how do you feel about A Clockwork Orange? So my very first interaction with Clockwork Orange was actually, it probably, my blockbuster days, actually. I'm pretty sure that's when it was. Um, and I remember thinking, not really appreciating it as much because I couldn't understand the hype. Um, I still stand for me personally that to this day, Kubrick's best film is The Shining. Nothing will ever be The Shining. Um, but as I've grown older and I've seen it over time, A Clockwork Orange actually comes in a fine second place for me when it comes to uh, Kubrick. Um, I want to start with this. About right when we had started, I don't even know if we were in production yet, we, but you and I had just met. I picked up A Clockwork Orange from Half Price Books um, and I was like, I, I've seen the movie. I'm going to read this book. Holy hell. I don't know if you've read this book and I'll be interested to hear if you have, I'm pretty sure you have. I think you told me you had, I, this was one of the few books I could not finish. Um, the way it's written, it, it's like Shakespeare, not in the realm of it, it's written like Shakespeare. What I mean by that, it's written in that 
like Shakespeare is written in a specific old timey English. This is written in such a specific Cockney English that I was like, what the fuck am I? I don't even understand these words on this page. Like I had a hard time reading the book and imagining where in the film it was. I fucked this book. The book's terrible. I'm sorry. But I just, when you, I, I can't understand a book, I don't need, I have no use for it. Um, the film, however, I think is a work of art. Um, now, I do find story-wise that once Alex gets to jail, the story falters, which is about 45 minutes into the film. The first 45 minutes, I feel, is this homoerotic, dirty, um, completely magical acid trip that I wish if I ever got the chance to try acid um, which I will one day finally get to do, that it's kind of that colorful craziness. Um, I think Kubrick is painting with every color in his palette here. Um, I, you know, he was coming off of, I believe, 2001, right after, yeah, 2001 with this, which actually has a cameo in the film. I don't know if you noticed that at the record store. Um, and everything from the texture of Alex's bed to the colors palettes of the apartment to the to the dicks drawn on the on the artwork in the in the uh apartment to i mean even the smut films that he's forced to watch it's so colorful and beautiful in that way and it's fascinating that this got a best picture nomination because there was a lot of controversy that year with this film for those who don't know um the Academy had a really hard time finding someone to announce Best Picture because there was such an uproar of this being nominated for Best Picture because it was considered legit smut. And people were pissed with the idea that if it wins, they don't want to be the ones to say it. Um, so I don't really think that it ever had a chance in hell of winning. Looking back, though, I think this may have, like if you were to take this um, lineup and put it in today, I'm pretty sure it would win. Um, because A Clockwork Orange has become a classic. It is referenced all the time in the music and uh, movies of Rob Zombie and his band White Zombie. Um, and, of course, there's Malcolm McDowell, who deserved a Best Actor nomination. I know we haven't gotten to that year yet, and I won't say who, but there are at least two men who I would take out just for one spot of Malcolm McDowell in the lead actor category. Um, also, listen, I like dudes. I love men. I'm not a twink person, not my thing, but 100% Malcolm McDowell in this is delicious. Holy shit. Um, also, with that said, very homoerotic in many parts to where even, like, revisiting, I'm like, wait, does he do something? Like, and I totally forget that he doesn't. But it's so interesting that, especially at a time in England when homosexuality was illegal, that this was a thing for the films. Now, I'm not sure if this was at the time right before it became legal or right after, or before or after it was legalized, um, but very interesting that, that they went that route with this. Um, but yeah, I mean, if, if you were to ever say there's a way to make violence pretty, it's a clockwork orange. Yeah, so I have um, an interesting relationship with this movie. Uh, so when I was, you know, first getting big into movies and stuff like taking it seriously um learning it and studying it as an art form um there were a few people at my high school who were also really big into film and um this is one of those movies that um 
the the film bros uh, really like. Um, a movie that a lot of um, young male uh, cinephiles um, worship. I don't want to say that you know only men or only young people like this movie. This just happens to be one of those, or at least when I was um, in high school in the late 2000s. It was like movies like this and um, Requiem for a Dream and Memento. Um, these were like the big uh, fanatic movies for uh, young cinephiles. And so um, I tended to not um, enjoy being around those people. I don't know why that is. And so um, there are certain movies that um, I I was not super fond of because of this own personal barrier that I had um, uh, constructed in my mind. Um, so for a while, I kind of scoffed at this movie, not due to any um, real criticism about the movie itself. It was just who I associated the movie with, um, which I know looking back seems so stupid and petty. Um, but now watching it, um, I see it with, you know, the eyes that I probably always should have seen it um, with. And um, this movie is wild. And um, I can see why so many um, more con conservative people back in the early 70s um, would have been so repulsed and um, scared of it. And um, I've also read the book. I'm not a huge fan of the book. Um, again, this is kind of um, like those folks I was talking about back in high school. There, there are people I knew who really loved this book and like read it over and over, and I just did not understand. I tried to read it back in high school, could not get through it, and then I picked it up again a few years ago, actually, and read it. Um, it is written in a very stylized way. Um, the the voiceover that you hear Malcolm McDowell um, speaking um, with here in the movie is basically how it's written with these um, made up words, um, this slang that sort of has its origins in Latin, but Anthony Burgess kind of skews it to make it more punk-ish, I guess. Um, so it's a very difficult book to read and um, not one that's really my cup of tea. But um, the movie is a fantastic adaptation, I would say, because it actually manages to, I don't know, create pictures that I could not really fathom. I think you had also mentioned something like that. It's really hard to visualize the book at certain times. But Kubrick um, managed to really flesh it out and give it character. Uh, Malcolm McDowell is fantastic as Alex. Um, I would also agree that he would have been worthy of a lead actor nomination. Um, there's an interesting documentary on Hulu called Skin that's about the history of nudity and sex in movies. And Malcolm McDowell is featured as an interviewee talking about his youth in the late 60s and early 70s and how he was I don't remember how he put it but he said he was like the the most naked actor of that era because he did so much nudity in his day that most men did not like he did frontal nudity and everything back in his day and um it's a it's an okay documentary but uh that portion with Malcolm McDowell is interesting um because he was a person who was really willing to go there and um a lot of the stuff he did was his own creation 
and I'm sure that um, also happened here in A Clockwork Orange because I don't, there are few film characters who are as iconic as Alex in A Clockwork Orange. Um, even people who've never seen the movie can see a picture of Malcolm McDowell with his eyelashes and his white outfit with that ridiculous cod piece and know exactly what this movie is. Uh, there's people that still dress that way for Halloween. So um, this movie has managed to stay relevant uh, pop culture-wise. It's still referenced, still paid homage to. And um, I think a lot of that has to do with uh, Malcolm McDowell, but also Kubrick. Um, this production design is crazy. Um, the costumes are insane. Um, it's, a, it's a difficult movie to stomach at times, but... Um, it's a it's one that has a lot to say uh, once you're really able to start you know picking it apart and all that. So um, so yeah, it's a movie that I have a a weird relationship with um, due to my own prejudices when I was younger. But um, it's one that I've I've grown pretty fond of um, over time. Um, I don't know if you ever saw it. This is the impact culturally it has too. I mean, where it does continue, you were saying, and it's amazing how the like pop culture zeitgeist, and I've brought that up before, that that term. Um, but when Rooney Mara was nominated for Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, um, that year, I think it was Vogue, or maybe it was Vanity Fair, it was one of the two, they took all the acting nominees and put them in like mini movies of like villains. And Rooney got Alex. And I'm just saying a Clockwork Orange remake starring Rooney Mara as Alex the Droog would be fucking fantastic because she looked the part. It is fantastic. And if I can find that, I'm going to send that to you after we're done recording. Yeah, that's fascinating. I could yeah. really see her doing that. Yeah, it was really good. It's like a each actor got like a 45-second mini movie and hers happened to be Clockwork Orange. It was really cool. Um, now, do you feel that this movie well first of all i want to talk about this malcolm mcdowell i do not for once buy him as a teenager in this movie it always slips my mind that he's supposed to be in high school so despite the great acting for the oscar nomination there i do have to dock him points a la jennifer lawrence in american hustle style because that is a ridiculous casting thoughts um, I also don't think he looks like a teenager, but considering how fucking crazy this movie is, for some reason, I just kind of go with it. I think mm -hmm. because of its sort of um, madcap tone um, and just how balls to the wall it is, I just kind of accept it in a way. But I do agree with you. He does not really look like an adolescent. Yes. Second thing I wanted to bring up, is this on Criterion? Because if it's not, I think that's a really dumb move on their end. Um, I'm not sure if it is, but that could be due to licensing. Um, I'm sure whoever owns this movie makes a fuck ton of money off of it. So that could be why it's not. And finally, does this deserve a remake or a like television series about Alex and his droogs? What do you think? Um, I don't think I'm not sure that it's necessary. I feel like if you're going to re-approach a clockwork orange you'd have to 
first break down what you think the movie is saying and reapply it to the time in which you are making it and how does it relate to its new framework because just to make it again for the sake of making it again seems kind of silly but this is a movie there's a lot going on in this movie beneath the surface that i think has um a lot to do with what you were saying with um the homosexuality and queerness being outlawed for a long time and prosecuted for a long time in england um so if if a filmmaker were to come up with some way of saying something about today using the same property um i'd be intrigued by what that would look like but to just remake it for the sake of remaking it i don't i don't see the point in that mm -hmm. no yeah i get it i wouldn't want to remake of this Again, though, the Rooney Mara version is fantastic, so I'm be open to that, but you know how I am with Rooney, so. Yeah, um, so re-watching this a couple weeks ago, I was kind of struck by something that I don't know if um, this has been written about or discussed. Um, perhaps it has, and I'm just late to the game. But um, that the uh, prison portion of the movie... Um, I found so interesting this last time because I was thinking about England and the time in which this movie was made. And I started watching those scenes where he's being cured as an allegory for conversion therapy, mm -hmm. how these folks are trying to basically rewire his brain and show him these images of violence and trying to basically make him not violent like he's some kind of robot whose brain can just be rebooted and you know later on we see him in that scene on the stage where they bring out that woman who's a who's topless and he's trying to fight the urge and eventually um falls over and passes out which may have all been an act as the ending implies, him just kind of going along and showing them what they wanted to see so that they could um, observe progress, even though um, they're making no progress whatsoever because there is no way to rewire his brain, similarly to how you cannot really convert someone to heterosexuality. Um, it's an I don't know if I'm reading too deeply into it, but considering the time period and who's making this movie, um, it's it's kind of hard to not think that there's something going on there, you know? No, for sure. I mean, there are very homoerotic moments in this movie. I mean, to the point of even, I mean, I, granted he is being cavity searched, but like, the way he bends over in front of the, the guard to um, specifically at one point he's asked if he's a homosexual to um, the way, you know, he's close with the droogs and on top of them. I mean, there's a one point where he straddles them. I mean, there's so much going on to where it almost feels like this movie is, is a metaphor for being gay at that time. I mean, I don't think you're looking into it too much because I've also thought that. 
Um, but I would be very interested if no one has written about that. You should do a deep dive into that. I think the way the way you write, I think it would be perfect for you. Yeah, I thought about it. I was going to look into it. I'm sure there's no way that it hasn't been written about before. You but, never... you know, I could always just apply it with my own POV. Yeah. Um, but another thing is he literally kills a woman with a giant penis. Yeah. Or at least, I don't know if she, I don't remember if she dies. Maybe she's just no, severely she injured. But he bludgeons a woman with a giant statue of a penis. Like, there's a whole sequence. So there's there's a lot of uh, stuff going on here um that I, I think is worthy of examination i can see why you know so many people were disgusted I mean, by look, this movie mask with the nose i mean when you look at it straight mm. out it literally looks it looks like an erect penis with testicles and everything so i mean there's so much going on with that that i mean remember though when i wrote about the deer hunter how it is truly a gay love story I mean, there, there's something there. There's enough evidence to back it up. Fuck yeah, dive into it. Yeah. And I mean, the the ridiculous cod pieces that all these young men are wearing, like, it's, it's hard to not notice, you know, all of these things when it's <laughs> so, like, in your face. Yeah. The fact that they're always drinking milk, you know? What it's is like? I don't get it. Well, I have a... I, I don't... I have... Mm. I just got caught up right there because I tried to say three different things at the same time. Um, so milk. It relates back, I think, to breasts. Um, so I think there's a, a sexualization there. It also can visually sort of look like semen-ish, you know, just being a, a white liquid. Um, you know, it's I've always wondered that myself, but looking at it this last time through this sort of queer lens um i don't know i feel like it has it has to be like a visual thing more so than just you know milk you know yeah i don't know it's it's i'm like kind of coming to these ideas in real time right now well i'll tell you what if they ever actually opened up a milk bar like that i would love to actually visit it because i just think like sitting around that would be really cool also if you've never seen um, check out Rob Zombie's music video for the song Red, Red, Groovy, which is literally based off of a, the milk bar and a line in this movie. Fantastic song and fantastic music video. Um, check it out. It's pretty cool. Okay. Anything else on Clockwork Orange for now? No, I'm good on that for right now. Okay. Well, next we have Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, Fiddler is nominated for eight Academy Awards. And it wins um, three of them. It is nominated for Best Picture, Director, Lead Actor, Supporting Actor, Art Direction, Cinematography, which it won for, uh, Sound, which it also won for, and Music Score Adaptation, which was, I believe, its final um, win. Going into this, it wins um, the Golden Globe for Comedy Musical, and it is nominated with the WGA. So um, I know you're a big fan of Fiddler, so um, how about you just... Go ahead and get into it. If I were a rich man. I love Feather on the Roof. Okay, let me explain how my obsession with Feather on the Roof started. Um, the very first musical I was ever cast in at the age of 11 was Fiddler on the Roof. And I don't, I didn't just play like a son. Like I got cast as Lazar Wolf. So here I am with all these <laughs> big people 
And I'm an 11 year old little fuck who is, yes, that talented enough to get cast as Lazar Wolf. It's quite hilarious. And I wish I could find pictures because it's really funny watching this little short kid being around all these people. I'm like, I'm going to marry your wife or your daughter. Um, so love Fiddler on the Roof. It is my favorite musical of all time. Um, the story is just so beautiful. The music is just great. There's, this is, I don't, there's not one musical where I like every single song, this one included. I think the biggest downside of the songs in this film is Miracles of Miracles, um, which Leonard Fry sings. Um, but the story is just feel good. And I gotta say, for a three-hour movie, it is the fastest three-hour movie I've ever seen to this day. Because that three hours feels like 90 minutes to me. Maybe it's because I love it so much. I'm really interested to hear how you felt about that um, specifically. But yeah, this is amazing. Um, I have a, like I said, I have a very soft spot for this for this whole story. Um, I think this is such a great film. This, you have to remember the time that this came out. That, that this wasn't, this wasn't known if it was going to be a success because we were coming out of the, the 60s, which was musical mania. And by the late 60s with films like Star and Camelot, like these musicals didn't make any money. Um, I think Funny Girl might have been the last one to kind of make money. And I don't even know if it was really that successful. I could be wrong. But Fiddler was a risk at this time and it paid off. But it is the last musical for quite some time, like a true musical. I'm not talking about like something like All That Jazz. I'm talking like true musical for a very long time with the Academy. I'm pretty sure even it might have been Chicago. What is the next big one after this? So there is almost 32 or 31 years, I think, in between. Um, and now I'm just doing that offhand again. I could be wrong. Um, but yeah, it is. Oh, I guess no. Cabaret was the very next year. So mm. I don't know if I would consider Cabaret like a musical musical like this. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so Fifth on the Roof was a very big risk and it paid off and it became iconic. Here you had this movie that starred a nobody actor who instantly became simultaneously famous and known for Tevia. Tapu played it so brilliantly and went on for like 2,500 performances of this um, character he played from stage to screen, back to stage. I mean, it was just amazing what he's done. Um, I wish he would actually get more work. I know, I'm pretty sure he's retired in Israel now, but um, come back. Uh, anyway, the film though is beautiful. It is beautifully arced, really well acted from everybody around, um, well, except for one. Uh, and uh, it's just, there's this is one of those movies that if I'm sad, I can feel happy with. If I'm happy, I can feel great with. I mean, it's my love for the story and this musical drives so deep that I'm pretty sure we could do a whole like three hour episode about it. And I would love to do it. I'd love to break it down. Um, everyone from Topple to Norma Crane to Molly Pecan to, I mean, Norman Jewison, hello, directed it. Great work here. Um, funny story. I don't know if you know this. Norman Jewison was hired because of his last name because they thought he was a Jew. And when they found out that he wasn't a Jew, they were like, what? So if you didn't know that, now you do. Um, but yeah, this is fantastic. I love this so much. I don't think there's really a downside except for the song Miracles of Miracles, but that's even in the stage version to the film. Just doesn't work for me. Um, what are your thoughts? I'm so curious and I really want to get to you because this is your first time seeing it. 
So I um I liked this movie more than I expected to. Um, this uh, film was never really on my radar. Um, I think, like I've said in a few other episodes, I was never really um, a musical person um, growing up. Even when I did theater, it was uh, more so um, plays, uh, like non-musical uh, plays. Um, did a few musicals as like a crew person, but they were never really um, my tempo in the way that, um, you know, a real gritty kitchen sink play can be. Um, so Fiddler was just just never really something that um, I was itching to see. And um, I finally watched it here um, not too long ago. And um, I enjoyed it more than I um, thought I would. Um, you know, it is three hours, but it does have a very nice pace to it. So um, I think it, um, it went by faster than I expected it to. And um, like you were saying with uh, this time period for the big musicals, um, Fiddler doesn't really have that um, old studio glitz to it, um, the way they were just sort of manufacturing these very um, artificial musicals with the uh, in-your-face color schemes and all that. There is a very uh, down-to-earth 1970s cinema feel to the way uh, Norman Jewison um, shot and staged this. Um, you know, there's, there's the people breaking out in song like they do in musicals, but it doesn't quite have the the jazz hands feel that a lot of uh, your standard musicals might from the older Hollywood days. Um, for the most part, I agree, the performances are quite good. Um, of course, you know, we'll get into the two nominated men eventually. Um, I don't, I'm curious if we have the same person we don't really care for in the movie. I was not a fan of Paul Michael Glazer um, in particular. For some reason, he just felt like he didn't belong. And I wrote down in my notes uh, that he's a dollar store Mandy Patinkin. Um, I'm not sure how you feel about him specifically, um, you know, to lift your your dollar store Jessica Lang phrase. Uh that's kind of how I felt about him. So what? That hasn't been said in so long. I mean, it just made me so happy that you just said that term. And no, yeah. it's actually. Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah, for some reason, I don't know why, he just he just seemed to go against the grain a little bit in terms of the way this movie gels. Uh, I'm not sure, maybe that's just me. But um, otherwise, I think this is a fantastic film. Um, I love the uh, graveyard dream sequence thing with with all the the ghosts uh, and the undead people i would love to see that actually like literally staged um on stage i'm fascinated by how that um works but uh yeah that's that's probably the my favorite scene considering you know i'm a spooky bitch but um yeah i liked it much more than i expected to so I want to answer your question how that's done, how we did it on stage for the Fruma Sarah um, Tevia's Dream, is that the actress who played Fruma Sarah for us um, was standing kind of on a um, on on like a what what were those things called? Uh, you just hmm, what was that horror movie that sequel with the with the rope that you reviewed a couple weeks ago? 
Um, oh, the gallows. The gallows. So it's so the thing is the gallows the rope or the gallows the thing that it's like set up on. I think it's the entire structure. Okay, so imagine a gallow but without the rope. So she like stood on that and had this like giant. Remember those parachutes that you would do in like gym class? Yeah. So she would go into the circle of like this parachute thing that was dressed out to be the dress. And the ghost would spin around her as she was, quote unquote, up in the air. So that's how we did our Fruma Sarah when we did that show, um, which was really cool. Because it made, like, it, you couldn't see that she was standing on a gallow. You just saw this woman hoisted in the air with the ghost running around her with the, the with the cloth running over. So that was really cool. So that's how we did ours. Um, so hopefully that answers that question on how you could do it. Uh, regarding my question to you, Paul Mann, because him and I, you know, shared a character of Lazar Wolf, was, we're not going to be able to talk about him, but I do want to put this question for you, because he was going to be the shoe and Supporting Actor nomination. He got the Golden Globe. Then Leonard Fry, let's not touch him yet until we get to that episode, so specifically Mann, Leonard Fry came out of nowhere with a nomination. So, was Paul Mann robbed playing Lazar Wolf of a Supporting Actor Oscar, yes or no? Um, I think he would have been a very fine nominee. Um, I remember going into this, so I knew that it had a supporting actor um, nominee, but I didn't know who it was um, going into watching it. And just sort of watching it, knowing that little nugget, um, I figured that that guy was likely the nominee. So, um, so yeah, I think it would have been a worthy one. Mm-hmm. And when we get to him, Leonard Fry would have been the first openly gay actor to win, I think, had he won. Because he was openly gay at that time. Oh, neat. Yeah. 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 He was, uh, he was a New York actor. He did the boys in the band. And I think he got a Tony nomination. And he died of AIDS, I think, in the early 90s, maybe late 80s. Mm-hmm. So, unfortunately, he uh, succumbed to the epidemic, which, you know, no bueno. But he lives on forever in Fiddler on the Roof. Um, also, Criterion, get on it. What the fuck? Yeah, I'm, I'm realizing how difficult it is to talk about this movie without talking about the two nominated men. Um, but I didn't realize that until, like, this moment. Like, I keep trying to mention things. I'm like, oh, wait, we should save that for the main episode. I know. Oh, how about this? Oh, no, wait, I can't say that either. We're still so far away from it, too. Um, now, we are getting a remake film of this. What are your thoughts on that, being directed by Thomas Kale, who did Hamilton and Fosse Verdon? Um, you know, I'm not opposed to remakes, um, unlike, you know, a lot of cinephile folks. Um, but, I mean, kind of like I was saying with Clockwork Orange, um, if they can, you know, find a way to say something about today using this property um reframe it in some way or cast it um in a interesting manner i'm all about seeing what um these folks are trying to say but um, the only time i ever kind of like shrug at a remake is when it's just you know a plain old remake they just made the movie again and it doesn't really have anything new to say or um, doesn't really it doesn't really have its own POV removed from the property itself. So um, 
I'm I'm intrigued. I'll, I mean, I'll definitely check it out um, whenever it does arrive. Yeah, me too. Real interested. By the way, this is just water I'm pouring. I swear I'm not peeing. Um, I am 100% on board for Remake. Give me more. Give me all of it. And uh, let's see an unknown play Tevia because that would be cool. They did it once. They should do it again. Yeah, I know. Um, so I know the makeup Oscar did not exist yet. But um, had it existed, I think this would have been a worthy um, nominee, the film. Um, you know, there's the graveyard scene, uh, which, you know, I'm so obsessed with. But also, I'm not sure how Topol looked outside of this movie. But he's, like, playing someone 20 years older than himself, if I'm not mistaken. And yet he completely looks the part. So I don't know if he was just someone who just looked old <laughs> all his life or if that was, you know amplified by makeup but uh i think this would have been a, a a worthy nominee in that category had it existed at the time yeah he was 35 playing 55 in this and it's funny because you see uh there's a video from him on youtube from about like a year or so ago and he still looks younger now than he does in this movie oh so they did age him up with makeup then all of that is prosthetics and makeup so okay i wasn't sure if he was just someone who had a very mature face from an early age, you know? Yeah. Yep. That's all I got for now because I just want to, I just want, I could talk about this forever and I know we still have a whole episode that'll be dedicated to the men of this. So it's so far away, but I'm just like, if we don't move on, I feel like we're going to both spoil it because we both want to just like talk. Yeah. But I think we got our good, uh, a good impression in there. Yeah. Uh, next we have the French Connection. It is nominated for eight Oscars, and it wins five of them. It um, wins Best Picture, Director, Lead Actor, Screenplay, and Editing. It is also nominated for Supporting Actor, Cinematography, and Sound. Um, going into this, it wins uh, the Golden Globe for Drama. It wins with DGA. It is a part of the National Board of Review's Top 10 of the Year. And it wins the Edgar Award, which is uh, an awards body that does like horror and mystery stuff and um it's also recognized at bafta the next year uh because you know things were a little different back then with the distribution and it's also recognized with the new york film critics um so how do you feel about our best picture winner of the year the french connection can i just start with i love that one of the biggest spoilers of the movie is the film's poster can mm. we talk about that okay like one of, no i'm just saying like the <laughs> did you not notice that I'm looking up the poster now. I'm trying to remember what it even looks like. It's with Gene Hackman. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's one of the biggest moments in the movie. I love that it's the poster. It's like, who designed that? Um, okay. So here's the thing. I love gritty New York. I've said it before. I mean, hello. It is gritty New York. It is kind of why I love the city of New York, even if it's not like that today. Um, this feels like a documentary of that time this doesn't feel like a movie this feels like a documentary of crooked cops racist ass cops who somehow do the right thing but are doing the bad thing at the same time and this is also one where we have two guys up for an oscar nomination so i don't know how much i can really get into it on my true feelings um but I think it's fascinating that this wins Best Picture. 
Don't let that be a, a cue of where I'm putting it or a clue. Cue, Jesus. A clue of where I'm putting it. Um, because you have to think of what it's up against at this time. It's up against a critical darling, Last Picture Show. It's up against the return of the movie musical that dominated everything, Fears on the Roof. It's up against one of the biggest and last epics of royalty like films in the vein of like, well, royalty, Nicholas and Alexandra. And then it's up against the possible upset winner quirkiness of A Clockwork Orange. What drove the Academy to pick this one? It's just as dirty as all of these movies in a way, but it, it's like realistic dirty. It's kind of fascinating. Um, the French Connection is a ride as all hell. Um, it is fun, yet disgusting, yet so of its time. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen what came out this year, too, was a film. It was Al Pacino's first movie. It actually should have been an Oscar nomination for him. It was called The Panicky Needle Park. Um, the If you do a back-to-back of The French Connection and The Panicky Needle Park, you'll never want to visit New York City. You'll also want to take a Silkwood shower. Um, it is kind of the quintessential, if you love gritty, gross New York, this is what you want to watch. I just can't stop saying it because that's what this movie is. Again, it doesn't feel like a movie. It feels like a documentary. And of course they made the sequel. And then there was the the TV show called Popeye Doyle. It's so fascinating that this bad cop thing, 30 years later with training day kind of worked in the same way. Um, both of which won its best actor or best actor winners from it. Denzel with training. And then obviously um, Gene Hackman with this one. I really don't know. I can't get into more of it without spoiling it because of, for that episode. So I, I'm just going to end it there. Yeah. So this is um, an interesting best picture winner. Uh, when you sort of look at what the movie is, um, the Academy is not always fond of genre. And here we have uh, a police thriller um, about some sketchy um, police officers. Um, it's a, I'd say it's a pretty easy watch um, in terms of uh, theme and runtime. This movie is like a nice hour and 40 minutes. Like when I went to revisit this, for some reason, I was thinking, oh, it's going to be like two hours and ten minutes. For some reason, like that figure was in my mind for some random reason. And then when I saw it was an hour 40, I was like, oh, that's nice. And so, you know, I was able to breeze through it really quick. And it plays so much like, I don't know, just a plain old thriller uh, from today. Well, I know in the context of its time, this was um, super edgy and kind of groundbreaking in a way in terms of its editing. Um, I mean, it rightfully wins editing in context of its time because um, that chase sequence is, it it's, might seem really mundane uh, by today's standards, but um, compared to other movies from that era, it's really um, kind of balls to the wall in a way. Um, the way that it's cut together uh, with the, the cross-cutting and the parallel editing and the, the shot um selections here from William Friedkin. Uh, so I can see why um, on a technical level, um, this was a bit of a marvel 
for a lot of people back then, which might seem kind of silly now watching it today. It kind of just plays like your standard cop movie. Um, but it's uh, it's tackling a really, um, you know, I guess it's sort of important subject for the time with um, the, the war on drugs and whatever um, that this would all come to be known as and um, the way cops kind of sketchily contribute to it while also kind of trying to stop it. It's a really interesting um, study in that regard. Uh, and speaking of remakes, this is one that I'd be really intrigued how it would play today in today's climate um, regarding police and um, the so-called war on drugs. Um, so it's one of those movies that I think I think it's kind of seen as a lackluster best picture winner by today's standards. Um, but sort of looking at it um, from when it was made, I can see why this movie would be seen as um, super relevant and also um, well done on a craftsmanship level. Um, and I mean, like I was saying earlier, it's a really easy movie to watch. Um, it doesn't really pull at the heartstrings. It doesn't ever really make the viewer uncomfortable in a way that like a Clockwork Orange might. Um, the runtime is less intimidating than, say, Fiddler on the Roof. It's not as sexually provocative as uh, Last Picture Show. And like Nicholas and Alexandra, um, it doesn't have the long runtime and all that. So I can see why given those factors, um, why it might end up on top, you know, for the actual Academy back in um, the 70s. So, um, yeah, I think it's a perfectly fine movie, um, but I think it needs to be kind of seen in the context of its day to really evaluate it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, when we do, we, we talked about this when we've done these picture rankings. When we go into this, we both agree that, like, we have to kind of view it in two ways as a voter in well in this year in 1971 and kind of how we feel about it personally so mm -hmm. get that but you're right other people don't yeah i think it's important to look at a work of art both ways like you were saying like it's important to kind of place it in its time understand what else was happening around it what other works of art were being created and how what was happening politically and historically in the time it was made that led to certain decisions and choices being made um, in the creation of it, but also um, looking at it from the point of view of today and how we feel about today. I mean, we can't, we're not robots who can just shut out today and our own personal feelings. So um, it's a balance. It's a balancing act. Um, some people look at it more so in its historical time. Some people more so look at it in the way that it fits in today. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's up to the viewer, I suppose. But yeah, I think we both kind of do that same thing or we kind of perform that balancing act of trying to see a movie from two different lenses and weighing um, its effects. Have you ever seen the sequel? No, I was going to ask you the same thing. I've never seen The French Connection 2. I have not either, but I feel like it's the like the sting to, you don't really need to see it. It was just made for money. Well, it's kind of funny. Um, 
I can't remember who it was, but someone on Twitter like a week ago randomly posted about French Connection 2 and how it was underrated um, and how more people needed check to check it out um, today. So well, maybe it is worth um, a look. Hey, if it's, I mean, I mean, Hackman did get, I think, Globe and BAFTA nominations for French Connection 2. That would have been 75. So that would have been the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, I guess. Um, I mean, I'm not going to, like, actively search for it, but if it's on Prime one day and it's, like, nothing else, like, yeah, why not? Yeah. Yeah, I kind of feel the same way. If it, if I ever stumble upon it, I might check it out, but I'm not really actively seeking out the French Connection, too. Samesies. Uh, anything else on the French Connection? Nope. Okay. Well, now we have our two movies that we've at least talked about, um, in part, uh, first we have The Last Picture Show. It is nominated for eight Oscars, and it wins two. It wins Supporting Actor and Supporting Actress um, for Cloris Leachman. It's also nominated for Best Picture, Director, Screenplay, Supporting um, Actress in, uh, for Ellen Burstyn, as well as Supporting Actor for Jeff Bridges, and then Cinematography. Um, Going into this, it is nominated with the Golden Globes for drama. It is recognized with BAFTA, the DGA, uh, the New York Film Critics, and the National Board of Review's top 10 list. So how do you feel about The Last Picture Show? This movie sucks. It's not good. Didn't like it when we reviewed it. Didn't like it when I first saw it. It's boring. These characters I don't give a shit about. I don't understand why people like this movie. And also, too, Cloris Leachman, come on. Not even in that lineup is she the best. Ellen Burson was right there. If you're going to nominate or have someone win from that, I don't like it. I don't know if you can tell. Um, I just, I don't get the love of this movie. It isn't good. It's these, none of these characters are redeemable. None of these characters carry a story that I think is interesting. Ooh, the movie theater's closing. Your mom's a whore. Cool. I literally have lived that life. Like, I don't know. It's just, it. I don't understand the appeal to this movie. Help me. Because I know you are fate more favorable of this movie than I am. But this is the one in the lineup that I think is a complete waste of time. That's all I got to say on it. Because I just, I'm honestly, I feel like people would be more interested in your take. And it probably really is more interesting than my babbling on about how much I hate this movie. So I, um, I do like this movie quite a bit. Um, I've always been kind of fascinated by this movie. Um, I think I saw it for the first time in like high school and, um, which I feel like was just the right time. Um, you know, this movie, a lot of the characters are younger and, um, they're coming into their selves, um, finding their place in society and what they want to do. Also, um, there's a lot of, um, sexual awakening and uh, promiscuity going on um, with a lot of these folks. Um, some of them are finding it on their own. Some are kind of being forced into it and all that. Um, and then we kind of get uh, the juxtaposition with the adults. Um, the Ellen Burstyn character is very um, free. Um, in comparison to the other people in this town, um, the other people her own age. Um, and then we have the Cloris Leachman character, who's a little bit um, more repressed 
and um, when she uh, begins her affair with, um, I think it's the Timothy Bottoms character, um, she sort of starts having a sexual awakening of her own um, in a similar but different way um, to the younger characters. Um, so I've always kind of found this movie fascinating, um, seeing it at different points in my life. I know I'm not that old, really, but at these different key uh, milestones, I guess, I've kind of seen it in slightly different ways. And um, I think it's beautifully shot. Um, I love the, the black and white decision here. Um, I know just about any movie can be shot in black and white, and the, the film lovers are going to scream, best cinematography, just because, you know, they love black and white. But here, I feel like it was actually a very strong decision to do it um, that way. I It's my understanding that it was actually Orson Welles who told Peter Bogdanovich that it had to be shot in black and white, that the movie would not work if it were in color. Um, there's something about the visual black and white, the way the, um, the image contrasts with itself that is more um, in line conceptually um, with what the movie is exploring. Um, this cast is also just fantastic. I mean, we've already talked about, um, you know, Leachman and uh, Burston in a past episode, and we'll get to the two men nominated here um, in the future. But um, I think Timothy Bottoms is also um, quite good in this movie. Um, I'm not sure if he was campaigned and leaders supporting. I suppose he's slightly more lead than the other men. Um, Sybil Shepherd, kind of likewise. I really like her arc in this movie. Um, the scene on the diving board um, where all the kids are swimming naked and she's on the diving board undressing um, is a beautiful scene. Um, some troubling things, I guess you could say, are happening during it, but just the way that it's um, photographed uh, is so good. And Sybil Shepherd is so fucking good in that scene. Um, kind of like Bottoms, I suppose, of the women, she's the, the closest to lead. And um, I'm not sure how she was campaigned, but um, I think she gives a performance that's worthy of recognition here. Um, yeah, I'm just a big fan of this movie. Um, I've never read this book. It's weird. I've owned this book for many years. I think I have a first edition. I found like an old ass hardcover in a used bookstore a long time ago. Um, I'm not sure if it's actually first edition, but it's definitely old. Um, and I've never actually read it. I don't know why. I probably should at some point. But, um, yeah, I think it's quite good. Uh, Larry McMurtry's stuff, um, it's kind of low-key queer, a lot of his writing. Um, like, I've read the novel that HUD is based on, and there's a lot of gay stuff going on uh, between the lines in that book that didn't quite make it into the movie. Um, and I'm curious if uh, the Last Picture Show novel um, is similar in that regard. But, um, yeah, I'm a pretty big fan of this movie. Um, I don't know, maybe at a different point in your life you'll revisit it and things will click. I'm not sure. But, um, yeah, I, I definitely like it much more <laughs> than you do. Which is why, again, I was like, ah, if you've listened to us since the beginning, you know that you've heard this from me before about this. I'm not really going to change my mind on this one as of now. 
I mean, I'm just saying the last or the last picture show. Um, there were, I think, there were just way better options that you could have done this year. I mean, like I said, the Panic and Needle Park alone um, was there. You could have done that. Play Misty for me was there that year. I mean, there's so many better options in this movie. Um, even Carnal Knowledge, and I don't even think that movie's that great. I don't know. It just doesn't work for me like other people. I'm glad you like it, though. Sunday Bloody Sunday. I mean, come on. How um how old were you when you saw this for the first time? 18. Okay. That's about... I guess that's close-ish to how old I was. Yeah. And I wonder how this movie hits for, like, people watching it for the first time. Like, whether they're teenagers or in their 30s or older. I don't know. I wonder how how it resonates with people at different age groups watching it for the first time. Cause I watched it in my teens and I was really big into it, but it didn't quite work the same way for you. So that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, even like summer of 42, I mean, something, I don't know. I just think there were way better options, but it's interesting because my view for this is usually the view for what people think of the next movie, which I'm huge fan of. So it's, it's kind of funny what works for people and what doesn't. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I guess we can um, transition over to that film then, if you want to. Unless you had anything else to to rant about with Last Picture Show. Meh, I'm done ranting. Okay, okay. Um, so our uh, final Best Picture nominee is Nicholas and Alexandra. It is nominated for six Oscars, and it wins two of them. Um, it wins for art direction and costumes, and it is also nominated for Best Picture, uh, Lead Actress, Cinematography, and Music Original Score. And it does not really have any precursors um, as a Best Picture nominee going into this. It kind of just um, appeared on the Best Picture lineup uh, on the morning. So um, I know you are a big fan of this one, uh, more so than most people. So um how do you feel about Nicholas and Alexandra as a movie? Really quick, can you hear my furnace in the background? No. Okay, I just want to make because it it gets it's really loud right now. So, okay. And three, two, one. Okay. So here's the thing: many people don't like this movie, and I understand why. Many people have also never seen this movie, and I don't understand why because it's available on Prime as of today, January second, twenty twenty one. Um. We need to get this movie out to people because it is breathtaking. It is beautiful. They don't make movies, these type of epic royal movies anymore. There was a period in the 1960s where, like musicals, the British invaded everything else with music and movies. I'm not saying British invaded musicals, but a lot of musicals in the, in the 60s were British. Um, this is a British biographical film that dealt with Nicholas and, and Alexandra, the last czars of Russia. And Lion in Winter, Anne of the Thousand Days, those are all British films that are in the vein of British, or I'm sorry, of royalty biofilms, but not in this sense. The reason I'm such a big fan of this movie, this movie is an epic. This movie is three hours, I mean, it's 188 minutes, so it's what, three hours and... 20 minutes if my math is right maybe my math is wrong 
three hours and eight minutes, something like that. This is a movie that feels three hours, that feels longer than three hours. This is not a quick three hours like Fiddler on the Roof. And that alone is a big turnoff for people. I mean, Janet Sussman alone said the movie's too long. And she was nominated for, and should have won, in my opinion, the Best Actress Oscar that year for this. Um, I get it. It's a lot for people to handle. With that said, if you are able to sit there and really just watch the film, watch the colors, watch the design, watch what Sussman is putting out there, watch the music, the jewels, you're, you're watching a, a storybook come to life. It is gorgeous. And this is the last film to be made like this that I can think of to this day. And it has been 50 years as of this year. 50. It's been 50 years and we have not had an epic movie like this in the vein of this royal drama. Sure, we had Anna, things like Anna Karenina and things, uh, I guess, like that, but not in this vein. And that is what I think is missing in in an industry filled with sequels and remakes and superheroes. I think that's why I love it so much. It's so unique that it's so uncommon that people tend to turn their noses to. And if you gave this movie a chance at least twice, I think you have to watch this movie at least twice to truly appreciate it, people would understand it. I mean, it did win production and costume design. Uh, so, you know, at least the Academy got gave it something there, but it truly is just a spectacle come to life. And I think that's why I love it so much. Yes, it's a slog at times. I get it. I can, I can give criticisms to things even I like too. I understand. But it is unlike anything else in the lineup and in the best picture race since. Yeah. Um, so visually it's a very beautiful film. Um, like you were saying, the colors pop, um, costumes are gorgeous. The set design and the, uh, set decoration is fantastic. Um, but also kind of like you were saying, it is kind of a slog. Um, I'm very iffy on, um, epics. Um, they're not exactly uh, my favorite um, type of movie. Um, and for, unfortunately, this is one that doesn't quite click with me. Um, maybe on a future rewatch, it eventually will. It seems like all the pieces are there. It just doesn't quite come together for me. Um, I think one of my favorite things about this movie is um, Tom Baker, who plays Rasputin. Um He's, like, really going for it in this movie in a way that I'm not sure completely gels with the rest of the movie. But um, based on what he's doing alone, I would not have minded if he had snuck into the Best Supporting Actor race. Um, I'm not sure if it really fits the movie, but I just kind of dig what he was doing, and he managed to keep my attention. Um, because the movie does kind of um, drag on for a while, I'm not someone who claims, you know, to be like a history buff by any means. Like I enjoy history and reading about things, but I'm, you know, far from being a historian in that regard. So, um, for a, if a movie doesn't quite grab me, um, 
the history is not enough uh, to keep me going. Um, and that's just a personal detail about myself. Uh, but um, technically, it checks all the boxes. Um, everything that's in front of the camera is quite good. Um, I think the the direction can be a little stodgy at times. Um, it doesn't quite have the edginess and the flow that I kind of wish it did that might have sort of kept me going. Um, it's not a movie that I think I would ever really seek out on my own had it not been, you know, for this show. I'm not sure if this is a movie I ever would have gotten to. Um, but I appreciate it for um, what it's setting out to do and the things that it does accomplish. It just doesn't quite add up for me in the end on, a, you know, just a personal taste level. Did you revisit it for this or did you just go off of when we did that episode? I have not revisited uh, this movie. Um, this is one that I didn't quite have the time for. I mean, as our patrons know, um, this episode was supposed to come out at the end of December and um, 2020 had some tricks up its sleeve and uh, we weren't able to quite get it together in time. And um, one of the things I was also not able to do was revisit this. Um, I wanted to, uh, like you said, it is on Amazon Prime, so it's pretty accessible. Um, so unfortunately, as of right now, I am going off of memory from um, that 1971 episode. Listen, I understand it's a lot to get in. And you're right. I mean, there are moments in this where you're like, I mean, another thing that I think can be a fair criticism is the editing in this movie is not great. There are many moments in this movie where you're like, you're in the middle of a something and something just switches and you're like, wait, what? Like, how are we, wait, huh? So I get it. I mean, <laughs> we do get a very young Brian Cox in this movie and Lawrence Olivier has a quick cameo here. So, I mean, it's not like this movie came out of nowhere with like randos. Um, so, and Janet Sisman, of course, was uh, recently seen on this past season of The Queen or The Crown. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. And, and yeah, Baker, Tom Baker was up for some supporting. I think we mentioned that in that episode. I think like the Golden Globes nominated him. So he was in the running. Yeah. So it definitely should have been in there, I think. And um, how do you feel about uh, Michael Jaston in this, um, who plays the other lead role? He does not get an Oscar nomination for this. So I suppose we can get into it. Um, how do you feel about him? Not great. So do you think he um, do you think he carries this movie at all? Is it um, it's why Sussman broke in because, you know, yes, I do give her the win here. I definitely think this belonged to her because she had to carry not only the film but make up what Jason was doing, which wasn't much. Um, I, you know, her Alexandra is very. She's not over the top, and I don't think it needs to be over the top. She's very subdued to where I think Michael Jaston isn't really playing for the back of the room or any room. I think he just felt like there was a megaphone everywhere he was going and kind of went to the school of overacting. So, um, again, I do criticize the movie where I think it needs to be criticized, and Jaston is one of those. Yeah, um, that's one of the things that I recall as well. Um, I think that has some to do with um, why this movie feels a bit like a drag. I don't think Michael Jason really carries it in any way. It kind of just feels like he's 
in the movie, but he's not really taking the reins um, ever. And um, for a lead, uh, a leading role, that's a, a bit of a problem, especially when the movie is so grand and so long as this one. Um, so I was curious if you agreed uh, in that regard. Yeah, for sure. Well, shall we see where we went? Sure. Um, so, you know, as a little uh, refresher, your nominees for Best Picture in 1971 were A Clockwork Orange, Fiddler on the Roof, The French Connection, The Last Picture Show, and Nicholas and Alexandra. And um, I'm just going to go ahead and put Nicholas and Alexandra in my number five spot. Um, as folks just heard here and in our 1971 episode, it's just not for me, and um, at least not right now. And uh, there's just more going on in the other four that I find um, more interesting. So um, Nicholas and Alexandra is my number five. Hey, at least if I recall, Susman was your three. So at least you put her higher, which is nice. Yeah, she was not last, as I recall. Yeah, I think she was right in the middle of the road for you. So. Yeah, it sounds right. Well, my last is no surprise, The Last Picture Show. This doesn't work for me, will never work for me, has never worked for me, and will will continue not to work for me. I don't like it, doesn't, it's not interesting, and it is the least deserving of these nominees to be here. So, for me, The Last Picture Show has to go at five. The French Connection is my number four. Um, I see why um, the Academy um, ended up rewarding this on paper. It makes sense to me. Um, when you see what this movie accomplished in its time and the movies it was up against, I can see why this one um, would end up um, edging forward a little bit to take the the win. Um, but for me, on a matter of you know personal taste, um, French Connection is only number four in this lineup. I have to go a Clockwork Orange at number four. Um, while the film is a visual feast and it is my second favorite Kubrick. The movie and the story really lags, I feel, once it, Alex gets to jail, which for a two hour movie, 45 minutes just seems a little too early for that to happen. Um, I think it was way more interesting when he's fighting and being awful with the droogs and doing these awful things. And like I said, if there's a way to make violence pretty it was this movie um so i'll give it credit but mm, i gotta put it up for it really lags as a movie once he goes to jail for uh for me a uh, fiddler on the roof is number three um this is one that i ended up liking a lot more than i expected to it's not my usual cup of tea but um it has a very brisk pace um, to it. Um, has some pretty strong performances. Uh, the music is nice, and um, I could see myself uh, liking this more on rewatch. Um, so it doesn't quite have the um, personal fondness that my one and two have for me, um, but it's one that I greatly admire, and um, I see why um, you are so fond of it. But um, Right now, Fiddler on the Roof is only number three for me. My number three is going to be The French Connection, so this year's winner. Um, Freakin' delivers, uh, like I said earlier, a film that doesn't feel like a film in the sense of a theatrical storytelling. 
it feels like a documentary during a time of New York that I find fascinating. Um, I can't really say anything else without getting into the characters of Popeye Doyle or, well, yeah, well, uh, Gene Hackman and uh, uh, Roy Scheider without spoiling it. So I'll get into it more when we get to that episode. But with that reasoning, it's got to go at three because just of what's left, I see what he was trying to do here. But the other two are just such an epic proportion of brilliance that three seems fair for the connection for me. Um, a Clockwork Orange is going to be my number two. Um, it's kind of funny. Uh, after watching Fiddler on the Roof uh, a few months ago, I was like, huh, is Fiddler my runner-up? Because I was so taken with uh, how much I ended up liking it. And then, you know, a couple weeks ago, I rewatched Clockwork Orange. And this new idea um, for me about, you know, Alex's re-education uh, being... Uh, symbolic of conversion therapy and gay persecution um, really got me thinking. And I mean, maybe that's always been there. And some people listening are like, duh. But for me, that was a new idea uh, that I just uh, realized while watching it. And it uh, really got me going. So um, it bumped a clockwork orange up a little bit for me um, from where it had been. And um it's going to be my runner-up. Uh, but The Last Picture Show is my winner. I know it might be kind of obvious, but um, there's just so much going on here that I really like. I've always loved this movie since I watched it for the first time. Um, I feel like I watch it every few years. I've seen it like three times now, maybe four, um, all a few years apart. And I feel like um, it works on a different level each time I watch it. And um, I think it would have been a worthy Best Picture winner that would have aged pretty well. And, um, yeah, personally speaking, it is my favorite of this lineup. So it is a, my Best Picture winner. I really struggled with this decision. Um, this was not easy. Uh, this was probably one of, if not the hardest number one I ever had to do for this show. Because on one hand, you have something very dear and close to my heart that is a near-perfect movie minus one misstep of a song. Perfectly cast, perfect storytelling, perfect on its runtime. But then you have, on the other hand, a film that is, has many faults. Oh, and Fiddler is iconic. So people know it, people love it. And then on the other hand, you have a film that has many faults but it is so grand and so beautiful. And there's so much history that I don't know if the filmmakers knew what to do with it exactly, but what they produced was a film that has never been able to be replicated in any storytelling in 50 years. But again, has a runtime that feels it plus more. The acting isn't great. The editing isn't really that good. So, and people don't know it as well, or and people look down at it. So do I give it to one that people know and love, or do I let that film have its glory and give it to one that I personally boast for? I don't know. And I want to be true with this because you can't, Best Picture's never had a tie, so I don't want to be like, it's a tie. Um, I don't know. 
I don't I still don't have a number one here. Um help. <laughs> um I mean it's not exactly set in stone. I mean, no, whatever I, you're feeling in the moment. No, like I, honestly, if we if we were to record nineteen seventy one over again, I would give the win to Cloris Leachman over Burston. But I did it to, with Burston on the day. Because that's what I was really feeling. So I mean I think what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna give the runner up to Fiddler on the Roof and I'm gonna give the win to Nicholas and Alexandra. Um, because of the fact that Fiddler is so beloved and it is a near perfect movie, and it really only has the one misstep for me. However, I think Nicholas and Alexandra would have been a worthy winner over Fiddler because of the fact of how grand it is, despite its faults. I get it. I get it. But it is so epic that it is hard to ignore and it has been ignored and that's unfortunate. Um, so yeah, I think I'm going to do it. I'm going to give Nicholas and Alexandra the, the win and further on the roof as my runner up. All right. That was hard. Yeah. Which is funny because my number one is your five and my five is your one. Yeah. It's funny how that happens weirdly often. <laughs> I don't think we're that far off. Well, I will keep that comment, but we haven't been that far off when it came to the when it came to certain people. Yeah. So. But yeah, that was fun. Yeah, it was a good selection of best pictures. Yeah. Or best picture yeah. nominees. You're right. Very good word for it. Very eclectic. Yeah. So. Well, um, any other uh, stray thoughts? No, if you haven't seen Nicholas and Alexandra, like I said, go check it out. It's on um, Netflix, or I'm sorry, it's on Prime. Actually, all of these movies are very available. The only one that isn't available to just stream for quote-unquote free is Last Picture Show. Yeah. And, um, you know, I guess for the patrons, uh, join our Star Draft League um, while you can. I think there's only two spots left. So um, get on that. I know some patrons signed up because... uh, when our first, when our season premiere came out uh, last week, um, some people signed up before it hit the main feed. So I know we got some patrons on our Star Draft uh, team here. So www.stardraft.com. Uh, there's a public league called Academy Queens. There's only two spots left. So get on it. Oh, I forgot to ask you, just because we kind of went over that really quick, not to jump back. Nicholas and Alexandra, could it be done as a remake? But I would, if it is, I think this would work better as like a Netflix series. Thoughts? I think it could be. I think it could still be an epic film. I think the epic film should make a comeback. But I think um, today's production standards, um, a Netflix or HBO miniseries would be the easiest way to pitch and market it. So that's likely what would happen. But I, I would support an epic film remake of this. Also, I feel like it is an interesting story. It just it it was not quite done as well as it could have been, in my opinion. Yeah, I get it. Like I said, the movie definitely has faults. Um, and hello theme, but Criterion, what the fuck? Anyway, um, I really look forward to our next episode. We've already announced it, so it's uh, Sissy Spacek one. We're gonna have Justin Priest on with us. Um, he was just texting me today. He was watching Crimes of the Heart to catch up. So uh, we'll have that out in a couple weeks. And uh, Happy New Year, Queens. Yes. Hello, 2021. Yeah. 
All right. Well, um, that's all for me. And I'm. That's all for me. Okay. Well, um, I am Brandon Stanwick. I'm a fucking hot mess that can't decide between two movies. So yay for me. And you have been listening to a very special uh, 1971 Best Picture uh, episode of Academy Queens. And on the count of three, we'll bid you goodbye. One, two, three. Goodbye. Goodbye.